Hey there, and welcome to The Jeffrey Van Dyke Show, a podcast for paradigm changers. Each week, I speak with another influential leader who's changing the conversation for their audience, their industry, and this world. I am so glad you're here. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the show. Today, we have with us Dr. Rachel Yehuda. Dr. Yehuda is a pioneer in the world of epigenetics, trauma research, and intergenerational trauma. Uh, She is a lovely human who has deep compassion and is really helping bring language and understanding to what trauma is and how it's passed down generation to generation, as well as some of the cutting-edge research on how to address it. Uh, Dr. Yehuda is Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience and Director of the Center for Psychedelic Psychotherapy and Trauma Research. She's also the Director of Traumatic Stress Studies Division at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine, which includes the PTSD Clinical Research Program and the Neurochemistry and Neuroendocrinology Laboratory at the James J. Peters Veteran Affairs Medical Center. Dr. Yehuda is a recognized leader in the field of traumatic stress studies. She's authored more than 450 papers, chapters, books in the field of traumatic stress and the neurobiology of PTSD. Her current interests include the study of risk and resilience factors, psychological and biological predictors of treatment response in PTSD, genetic and epigenetic studies of PTSD, and the intergenerational transmission of trauma and PTSD. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Rachel Yehuda. Welcome, everybody. So glad you're here. I am just, um, I'm really, really looking forward to this conversation, Dr. Yehuda. Um, I, I find your work fascinating. I find the topic fascinating. Uh, and I think there's a lot we can learn from you about about change, about change over time, about change in society. Uh, and I'm particularly interested as we dive in to learn about your work and the implications of that work as it relates to change in the world. So um, thank you. Welcome. I'm sure. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks uh, for asking me. I want to start here. Could you tell us a little bit about like where did you grow up? Uh, was there trauma in your upbringing or trauma around you? Like, how did you get into this work? And, and what in your background can you look back and go, I, I think that's part of what put me on this path? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I don't think I grew up feeling that I was uh, traumatized in any way. I think I felt pretty normal in my upbringing. Um I don't think I saw huge traumas occurring. I lived a suburban life in the Midwest in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, Jewish, um, suburban, (laughs) right? Um, So no, I don't think that I came to connect um, through some personal incident that happened in my life. I think that um, I came to the field of trauma really more from an intellectual place. Um, I was very interested in neuroscience and kind of psychology and psychiatry and all those things. Uh, Maybe in retrospect, um, maybe there were people that were undergoing um, things that I sort of understood on some level. Uh, 
I know that I grew up in a community where a lot of my friends' parents were Holocaust survivors. My, my own parents were Israeli. Mm-hmm. Um, but we didn't think about it in terms of trauma. We just thought about people who were American versus non-American. So no, I don't, I think, I don't think that anything um, particularly traumatic is what um, moved me to, to study trauma. I, yeah. I, sorry to disappoint you on that. <laughs> no, no disappointment. You know, I uh, yeah. little background in my work. One yeah. of the things I do with with the people I serve, and a lot of my work is, you know, helping to package the work of paradigm changers. But one of the mm-hmm. things I look at is how their core wounds impact their growth and development. Um, yeah. And 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 I kind of look at it through the lens of it being a training program for their life's work, right? I call it their life's PhD. Um, yeah. But I do. I, I think of trauma and wounding as related, but quite different. Um, so why don't we start there? What's your definition of trauma? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think that there is the objective definition of an event that is just catastrophic, mm-hmm. um, that uh, I like to define trauma as a watershed event that divides your life into a before and after. Um, it's usually life-threatening, involves the possibility of dying, um, makes you feel very helpless, scared, something like that. Um, I think there's also the subjective definition of trauma that And that refers to the fact that um, something can be a really major cataclysmic event for one person and not have as deep an impact on another. So what will be that watershed event um, for different people will vary. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, I think it's that thing that you look back on and say, wow, that changed me. Yeah. Um, Many people, they experience... um, assaults early in life and they don't have a chance to really metabolize what happened to them in terms in those stark terms that's a we call complex trauma or complex ptsd sometimes when you know there are developmental insults that kind of change the trajectory of of how you see the world and how you grow up but in but in the framework of really not having um adversity or or big adversity in your life and then having a major thing happen, you're kidnapped or you're involved in a war or interpersonal violence, um, that kind of thing can really be a watershed, really be the divider of your life. Yeah. Do you, I love that word, uh, uh, something you can't metabolize. Uh, Mm -hmm. That's such a good word. Um, do you see a difference? Like, what's the difference between trauma in early childhood? Like trauma that's, let's say you grew up with a father that beat you. And maybe mm-hmm. it was, I mean, do you consider that in your definition of trauma is that trauma? And if you had a childhood where like there's a lot of adverse impact on you that you couldn't metabolize, how is that different from a watershed moment like being kidnapped or, you know, I know you researched uh, uh, pregnant women who were in 9-11 in the Twin Towers. H- how are those two things different? Well, well, they're different in a lot of ways, but one way is expectation. If, if you grow up um, and somebody's beating you and you and your circumstances are adverse and maybe you don't have somebody there telling you that you actually 
don't deserve to be beaten. Mm -hmm. Um, Then you grow up in a very different way than somebody who has been told that they have a right to agency to their own life, to have a life free from predators. Uh, When something happens in adulthood, first of all, you know it's you didn't. You know that this isn't something that should be, or that you deserve, right? Right. You know that this is something different than what the normal experience of living is. But when you're um, traumatized early in life, especially when you have a series of adversity, especially if it's somebody in your family, somebody that you're supposed to love and trust, you grow up with a different expectation about what the world is. In some sense, you're a little hardened and prepared for adversity in adulthood. In another sense, perhaps you're more vulnerable also um, to the effects because they're in some way additive. So you have a vulnerability and and kind of um, and an inoculation at the same time because you're used to it. Yeah, (laughs) but it still has an impact. Yeah. And so um, what happens to us early in development really does lay a very important foundation for how we're going to respond to things um, as we get older. And, and some people are, are so shocked when something terrible happens to them, like, why me? People that have had history of adversity are more like, why not me? I mean, right. you know, so it really is um, a very important um, frame of reference. I know you talk a lot about resiliency with trauma. You know, one of the things I've seen over the years, like if I break down everyone I've ever worked with, one of the primary distinctions I can make are people who knew they were loved, even if they had a lot of adversity and people who didn't know they were loved in childhood. And the people that didn't know they were loved, have just seen so often like the resiliency level is starkly different um, in yeah. terms of, you know, just how they're able to cope with different things or, or, or their own self-talk and relationship to what they perceive they can do in the world. Um, so, you know, I imagine that if an adverse uh, event happened later in life, if you had a otherwise relatively healthy upbringing, like you said, like, this should not be happening. And it is. And now I, you know, and it had a big impact on my life, but the ability to cope with it, I imagine being quite different. Um, Well, the the ability to cope is actually going to depend on a lot of factors. I mean, if you're, if you're too sheltered, then you might find that you don't cope as well because the ex, you know, your expectation is so shattered and you're so unprepared for something happening that you can't control or um, that you didn't anticipate. Um, On the other hand, you can draw on um, strengths you've had in the past, especially love, especially people um, giving you, um, sorry, especially people giving you um, a sense of self-worth. And um, those can really buoy you up quite a bit, Hmm. give you um, the tools you need. So, so, yeah, I think that what you're saying is really true, that um, you can survive a lot of adversity, particularly in childhood, if there were a few people there that buffered it, yeah. that gave you the message that you didn't deserve it, that you are lovable, 
um, that the person who violated you was wrong. These are such simple and important messages, but they can really make all the differences. Um, so when you talk to people who survive war, for example, or being a refugee um, in childhood, and they talk a lot about a family member that helped them get through it, um, either a parent or a sibling, I mean, that can make all the difference in the world between, um, you know, after you come out of the experience, whether you can kind of rebuild again, that sense of having somebody there to prop you up, to kind of narrate what's happening, to give you that kind of feedback about how you're doing. And without that, you could really be lost at sea in much in a much different way. Yeah. I, what I hear you saying is like, if you have somebody that can help you do sense making of something that doesn't otherwise make sense, uh, it can be a big part of getting through it. Um, it's, it's also validating it. You know, I mean, if, you know, when our children fall and hurt themselves, they say, ow, you know, our jobs to say, yeah, that did hurt. Yeah. You know, um, it's, it's, it's validating something unpleasant and then. But we hopefully teach our children when they fall is, okay, in a few minutes, it, it won't hurt so much. Or let me kiss the owie and make it better, right? We do things that kind of give the message that, yes, you will be hurt. And, yes, there's probably a way to make it better. But it starts with validating it. Yeah. It starts yeah. with being able to name it. <laughs> One of my questions, uh, actually, uh, was about the power of naming things, because part of oh, what, nice. <laughs> when I, you know, when I, when I was preparing for this and, and, and listening to you talk in different places, I was like, oh, there's a real power in naming something uh, that is really tough to name, uh, especially, uh, you know, so let's get into epigenetics, because I think there's so much in that that's tough to name or know without some of this science. So, First, what is epigenetics? And then we'll, we'll get into it. Okay. So epigenetics is simply the study of how genes are regulated. Um, and it's really the study of how the DNA that you're born with um, comes to express itself. When you think about it, every cell in our body has all of our DNA in it, right? But at some point... We start out from a single cell, and as the cells divide to form us, some cells become skin cells, and some cells become brain cells, and some cells become, you know, all sorts of things. And so it's epigenetics that begins this process of really turning genes on and off so that they can express their destiny, so to speak. And this process continues throughout life. So even though we're fully formed, you know, at some point, um, the things that happen in our environments can also modify the way some of our genes function. Hmm. And this is a concept that's really been known for quite some time, um, since the 1940s. But, in, but recently, it's really become a very important idea in helping to kind of mediate a debate that we were having in our field for a long time about nature versus nurture, right? So are you the way you are because of the genes you were born with? Or is it the things that happen to you that really make you who they who you are? And what epigenetics 
helps us do is say, you know what, it's really both, and here's why. It's mm-hmm. because the things that happen to you also influence the way that your genes can function. And so it's sort of an iterative process where um, you're constantly um, changing as a result of your experiences, even though some of the things are not going to change. I mean, your eye color isn't going to change. There's certain types of uh, genes that are not going to be subject to change, but a lot of them might. And so it's become a powerful concept because a lot of times people feel very stuck about the concept of genetics and and genetic vulnerability and risk, like I'm doomed. I've got these genes. (laughs) Right, right. We do. (laughs) Um, But then again, we also know that um, the conditions under which we are raised or the conditions under which we live our lives also really matter. I mean, if, if, if good things happen, we're different than if bad things happen or, um, or the, the lessons that we learn by being in the environment seem to have a kind of a, a permanence or an endurance. You know, they're not just fleeting things. The things that happen to us do shape us. Now, how, how can the things that happen shape us and also our genes shape us? Well, because there can be this interaction and epigenetics, at least in concept, really explains um, how these two things can really work together. So let's get into epigenetics and trauma. Um, One of the things that, and I, I would love for you to share the science around this, but you know, how does intergenerational trauma work and what is, you know, what does the study of epigenetics teach us about that? Okay, so let's just talk about um, trauma first before we can, you know, get into intergenerational trauma. So let's say something really major, cataclysmic happens, right? A lot of people that experience um, very traumatic events will say something like, I'm not the same person I used to be, or this really changed me. Mm-hmm. Um, soldiers will say, you know, I left myself on the battlefield. Um, rape victims will say, I'm just not that girl anymore. Um, or, you know, it doesn't have to be a girl. <laughs> rape happens to yep. everybody. Actually. But um, people will, you know, some, <laughs> sometimes I would say, you know, sit shiva for their former selves <laughs> right. um, after a traumatic experience. Um, of course, they're the same person that they were in, in terms of all the things that count. I mean, the, the, the structure of their DNA isn't different, but they feel different. And so the epigenetic changes that may have happened as a result of trauma uh, may explain this feeling of transformation. There could be ways in which the the need to respond to the environment, the stress response, and the need to keep responding to environmental triggers could have really made um, changes in the way the brain talks to itself, functional connectivity, and the way people respond to their environment forevermore. So let's say that these um, changes that people notice in themselves are underpinned by epigenetic mechanisms, right? There's um, a certain epigenetic change on a, on a DNA molecule or something like that. Um, well, 
It turns out that one of the features of epigenetics is that an epigenetic mark on the DNA will survive normal cell division. We call it heritable. So your cells are dividing all the time, right? Yeah. So you have a parent cell that through uh, mitosis becomes two daughter cells. So let's say as a result of trauma or something like that, there is an epigenetic change on one of your cells and that cell divides, well, the two daughter cells will also have that epigenetic change. It's very, very possible that um, an epigenetic change in sperm or egg um, might also um, survive. And it is possible, at least theoretically, that an epigenetic change that occurred from trauma might live in some form um, on gametes or sex cells. That's one potential way that an epigenetic effect can be transmitted um, to the next generation. Another way we have of transmitting things to the next generation is in utero. Um, when fetuses are in the inuterine environment, things that happen in the inuterine environment or things that happen to the mother more specifically can cause um, epigenetic changes to the fetus. So that's yet another way that there can be kind of an intergenerational effect of trauma. Um, but the most interesting intergenerational um, effect of trauma is behavioral. Hmm. And this is something that people um, n um, started realizing uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago or so, that um, this is the work of Michael Meany in Canada. This is really profound work, um, he, he noticed that if you um, uh, subject uh, rat mothers to, um, to stress, then they have a behavioral change that then affects their rat pups. Um, they have a, a change in their maternal licking and grooming of their rat pups. And so their very behavior can influence their rat babies' responsiveness to stress um, that can then be observed even as the rat um, ages um, and can be observed also intergenerationally. So we can influence our children not only through the, um, the epigenetic changes in our sperm and egg, but not only in, in utero, but also by our behavior, yeah. attachment behavior, um, all sorts of behavior in early development, how we how we raise our children. So these are so if you have um, if you have behavioral changes as a result of trauma, uh, these may also very much impact on your child and result in epigenetic changes in your child just as a result of your behavior. So it's yeah. a very powerful yeah. concept. Could you share a little bit about the work you've done in your research of the children of Holocaust survivors? There's a there's a particular um, question I have about it, well, which I'll share in a minute. <laughs> All right. So the question I have, you know, I think about the nature of change in our world, and everybody I work with has something they want to change in the world. Um. And over the last, I don't know how long, uh, the idea of 
trauma and being trauma-informed and trauma-aware, like it's starting to grow in the world, um, or at least in the circles I'm in. Um, and I think about horrific events like the Holocaust. I think about uh, the history of slavery in this country. Uh, you know, I think about indigenous peoples in a variety of countries, and that's just recent history. And then I think about the history of humanity, <laughs> right? Uh, thousands of years of some horrific things we do to one another. And I, I understand like the genetic markers and the behavioral uh, changes that can happen, say, within a few generations. But I'm also thinking in terms of like multiple, 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 multiple generations in the history of humanity and the real, and, and like, how have we become who we've become because of those two factors over time? So that's that's what's in my that's what's in my head, and uh, you know, I think that some of some of what some of your research can can shed a light on that. Yeah, so um, I think that you're describing something really interesting, um, but. The, the, the valence in, of what you're saying is that people who have survived multiple generations of trauma may, um, may also be traumatized or, or different as a result of all those generations of exposure. But what they also might have are remarkable coping um, capacities and um, adaptations. Um, I mean, they survived, number one. Right. And... Um, so when we talk about um, the purpose, let's say, the evolutionary purpose of being able to transmit um, essentially biologic information or um, changes on the genes in response to trauma or stress. Sorry about that. When we um, talk about um, being able to survive um, multiple generations of trauma, we talk about the body's remarkable ability to um, preserve information about coping from one generation to the next. I mean, what we're really doing is preparing a next generation for um, being able to respond perhaps in a better way to adversity mm -hmm. um, than, than what we had. So it's really a knife that cuts both ways, right? On the one hand, it's terrible that um, we are born to people who have suffered greatly. Um, but on the other hand, if there is a change that has occurred as a result of being exposed to trauma, it's not necessarily true that that change in all circumstances will be a negative change mm -hmm. or a maladaptive change. It's just that sometimes the things we learn or the changes that we make in response to adversity have to be unlearned sometimes, right? So when you're, when you're exposed, like being um, a soldier is a great example of this, right? You, you go to, to basic training and people teach you how to survive, how to attack, how to kill, if that is something that is something you're gonna need to do, how to be hypervigilant and really how to function in a much better way for war than you've ever been able to function before. When that soldier returns back, successfully returns back, 
then a lot of those qualities that really served well on the battlefield may not be serving well in civilian life. I mean, being hypervigilant and constantly feeling alarmed um, may, ha may have been the thing that kept you alive when you needed it, but you might have limited use for that now, and it, it actually may interfere in your life. So the idea of being able to change when the circumstance demands it is fantastic that we can update our bodies and that we can teach our bodies to respond to new circumstances in a way that can help save our lives. But sometimes those changes, they don't work for us and yeah. they yeah. can cause problems uh, like post-traumatic stress disorder, right? Fundamentally, when you're exposed to a traumatic circumstance, to learn, all, every, to have a memory of that is adaptive, right? If, if you were assaulted in a dangerous neighborhood, you want to have a memory so that next time you're nearing that neighborhood, you could be more careful. But to have a traumatic memory that keeps coming over and over again, right, to overlearn that yeah. lesson, that can be very burdensome. And so we really want to be able to um, have other environmental exposures modify previous ones. We want it to be a continually dynamic process so that we can also unlearn some of the things we've learned in trauma or at least contextualize them or modify them. One of the things I see with people I've worked with who've had trauma and you know these are these are people that are highly resilient they're successful in the world etc and there are some of those maladaptive behaviors that just keep it's like a you know it's a road they have to keep walking down somehow and as much as their mind might tell them i don't want to walk down that road i don't i don't want to have that maladaptive behavior like uh you know I, it, it's hard to get the needle out of the groove of that record. Um, what are some of the things that you're seeing or researching? You know, I know you're doing work. You've done a lot of work around PTSD. Uh, I know there's work you're looking at around psychedelics and treatment. What are some of the things you're seeing that are really supportive of people who go, yeah, I'm not in that environment. I'm no longer in war. I'm not in this country. I'm not on the battlefield. I'm back in Cleveland. Um, what are some of the treatments you're seeing that are most promising, perhaps? Well, look, I mean, there are a lot of treatments for PTSD, and all the treatments work sometimes, right, in some people. And so one of the art forms, I guess, in clinical work is to be able to match a person with the right treatment. So, so some of the approaches involve desensitization. So these approaches work really well if your PTSD is really based, um, is fear-based. That means something happened to you and interpersonal violence would be a good example. Um, and now you're afraid to go out of your house or you're afraid, um, you feel very vulnerable. So doing cognitive behavioral therapies that are exposure-based may teach you that you really don't have to be afraid um, of every person you see. Not every person out there is going to um, assault you, right? So it can, it can desensitize you to your own fear memory so that you can 
kind of gradually um, contextualize what happened, right? I was assaulted one time when I left the house, but then there were all these other times that I wasn't assaulted and maybe there can be again, right? Mm -hmm. um, for some people, um, they don't want to do a lot of thinking or talking about the trauma. They just want um, a reduction in their symptoms. They want to be able to sleep better. They don't want to think about the trauma very much. Uh, some people benefit uh, from medications, although um, medications have side effects and the symptoms tend to come back when you go off the medicine. But for many people, that solves the problem. The psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy is a way to kind of confront a trauma um, where in a state where you're not running away from it in your mind. Hmm. Um, for some traumas that involve like moral injury or involve um, developmental traumas, things that are, are more than just fear, right? Things that involve having a lot of shame or guilt or things that um, are very complex and multi-layered. Um, sometimes when you do the regular therapies, it's just too distressing to um, talk about them or think about them. And you end up kind of not being able to complete a course of therapy because you're too distressed. In fact, one of the most common problems in cognitive behavioral therapies, particularly for more complex PTSD, is that the dropout rates are high because mm -hmm. people have this natural aversion to talking about or staying with the trauma. But with psychedelics, they, they can put you in a different state so that you can revisit the trauma and do some of the work that you need to do in order to get to the other side. So what do I mean by that? Um, a lot of times when you have PTSD, you're stuck in a narrative um, that you just don't change. That narrative could be, it was all my fault. Um, there was something about the way I behaved during the event that that made things worse, or I didn't do enough to stop myself. Um, many, uh, many people who were sexually abused as children feel that it was their fault. Even if they were abused when they were five or six or seven or eight. Mm -hmm. And the reason they feel that way is because probably their perpetrator told them things like, oh, I can't resist you. How could you be so beautiful? This is, you know, you're irresistible. I can't help myself. If you tell anybody, your world, you know, if you tell anybody, you will hurt everyone and blow up your world. So you end up getting this idea as a really young um, child that you have this power and that everything is your fault, right? Uh -huh. But in, in, it's possible under... Um, a psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy to kind of have an awareness in a very different way for the fact that perhaps, you know, you were five and you were very small and maybe it wasn't your fault. Like you might be able to see yourself as that small, vulnerable little child and then say, oh my goodness, that couldn't have been my fault, right? right. So you can come to the kind of understanding that removes the stuck point. And usually... The stuck point is 
has fear to it, but a lot of guilt or shame. So a lot of um, soldiers also struggle with um, things that they also perceive were their fault. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's tough, the decisions you have to make in war, but a lot of that is because the training is focused on the fact that you can control a lot of things out there, right? So you have to be able to kind of look at things in a different way and see that there were not a lot of really good choices in the situation of trauma. And even if you did do something that you feel you can't get over, you can have some self-compassion or you can make room for it or or like you might deserve anyway to have a good life because people do make mistakes and what could you do going forward that would result in leading a meaningful life. So you're able to kind of play, play with it a little bit, change it a little bit so that you can come out to, with a better understanding and a better sense of purpose. Because one of the things that trauma does is it creates this rigid narrative that you stick to. And so the idea of, of making it less rigid around the edges is the beginning of loosening it to, so that you can metabolize it. You know, yeah. Just literally that. And so that it's still there. Those things still happened. But they're not all of me. They're just part of me. There's more to me. There's more I can do now. There was more before. There is going to be more after. And you can, you can start to work with it. Um, because that's that's what the job is after uh -huh. a trauma. You you accept what happened. You make room for what happened, and and you mourn for some of the you know this idea. I'm not the same person I used to be. It's 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 such a profound idea, and there 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 is a a, a part of you that does have to mourn the loss of of the innocence, right? Of, yeah. of the fact that that you you've experienced something hard, but most of the good that is done in the world, you know, is done by people who have survived adversity. And you asked me that question as the first question, you know, um, that's not my case, right? That's yeah. not what, what brought me to the table, but I am so profoundly struck by how much change is made by people who have suffered, by people um, who have really decided that not despite their suffering, almost because of it, that change has to occur. And so when you can start mobilizing um, some of these other ideas, um, when you can um, let up on yourself, you know, people are, so, the, sh the most shocking thing about um, the PTSD response is how hard people are on themselves. Yeah. Really. Um, the amount of, of of shame and blame and, and just um, this idea that because something happened to you, you must have deserved it or you must have let it happen or some um, some narrative. When you can start looking at that from a different perspective, you can have some real healing and then go on to change the world. Yeah. It seems to me, you haven't said this word, but it seems to me like forgiveness is a key component somewhere in this. Is that? Yes, yes. I, I'm using the word compassion, but I, mm -hmm. I, I think, for, you know, I don't like to use the word forgiveness, I think, because it implies there's something that you need to be forgiven for. But, uh -huh. but you know what? It's yeah. not, it's 
not a bad it's not a bad thought. It's I think that in reality, um, I think there's something there, um, and sometimes you do need to forgive yourself because there is something there for you that you need to forgive yourself for, and that has to be looked squarely in the eye. And the fact that you have done something for which you need forgiveness does not make you a worthless human being. Yeah. It does not mean that you don't deserve to be here anymore. That's not really how this life works. And I think if you can profoundly get in touch with that idea that, you know, it, it's not over just because you had a blip on the screen or you, you don't have to re-evaluate everything that was good about you on the basis of something that was bad. Um, yes, that has elements of forgiveness um, in it, but it's self-forgiveness. Um, it's, it's this idea that I, I like. I like to say that you just let up on 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 the brakes a little, and you um, you develop a compassion and, and empathy and love for yourself that you you kind of reconnect with that. I think it's the self-loathing that is so uh, difficult for people. Yeah. And yeah. then with this. Once you have the self-loathing, then you're looking for ways to kind of justify the self-loathing. <laughs> so it, it, it really creates a very difficult um, trap. So let's talk about this in relationship to, you know, change in the world. Um, but first, first, let me ask this um, what are the questions you're still asking right now? Where where is the 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 next place where you're uh, leaning into your work and and understanding of its role in in society? Well, we've um, just recently started a center for psychedelic psychotherapy and trauma research, and um, I've become very interested in um, seeing whether psychedelic assisted psychotherapy can work for PTSD and who it will work for, who it might not work for, um, what that means when it does or doesn't work, what, the, what, what are the biologic mechanisms, including epigenetic mechanisms that might be involved in that, um, are, do you make fundamental changes in, in the functional connectivity of your brain, um, what, are the, what are the personality characteristics that um, are really important for um, compassion and for healing. Um, so we're starting out by looking at MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, we're, we also um, plan to look at psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy um, and maybe other things. I'm interested in looking at it in terms of not only PTSD, but intergenerational trauma. Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people um, really suffer because of um, racial bias, um, microaggressions, just all of the messages that they have gotten in society and also from their ancestors, really, um, that they um, have to be more careful that they will be targets. They may have been targets, but they may have been just a series of little T traumas, right? Not necessarily like headline stuff like being kidnapped or being in combat or something like that. But people need to process that yeah. and um, need to kind of understand how they can 
give themselves a different message, um, how they can use the things that have been passed. I mean, this is really the challenge. How do you um, take the legacy of your ancestors that you don't want to throw away? You want that legacy. We are our memories, and we're also part of the history, and we want to be. And when that history contains adversity, um, we want to make room for that, and we want to go forward positively without kind of denying it. Yeah. Um, but also without being traumatized and triggered by it. And so that's the task. And so how can we find um, space to figure out the positive legacies of, of those negative ev events? And I think that's, that's our challenge. Um, we don't live in a world where trauma is not going to happen. It is just a matter of time, according to statistics, between 70 and 90 percent of people are going to experience a very big trauma, and about 25 percent are going to experience multiple traumas in their lives. So, you know, it would be great if we could do trauma prevention, primary prevention, but maybe the exercise we we have to engage in is really like the what next after trauma. You know, there there is a brief period of time where you do feel paralyzed by it. I think that's normal. And I think I think that's kind of good in a way to to really kind of go down there and feel the things that, that you feel. One you know, it's all negative. If, if it's negative to, to feel bad, but you know, when you think about um, a traumatic event, you can also appreciate what you had before and what you might have again. So there are all sorts of ways to develop more gratitude about things that we take for granted or to sort of um, be very self-congratulatory on the fact that you did survive, yeah. the fact that you can survive, and that maybe we want to focus on how we teach our children to survive because it's better than telling them that they won't have to worry about being exposed to adversity because they will. Yeah, yeah. When you look at the future, like what's your hope for your work or maybe the broader work of our understanding of trauma in the world? Okay. Oh, that's such a profound question. Um, my hope is that we'll be able to, um, to contextualize trauma, to grow as a result of trauma, to be able to use adversity to make us better, more compassionate people, um, people that reach out to other people, because, you know, usually the people that help other people are those that understand what's going on mm -hmm. with them. Um, how many times have I seen on the subway that the people reaching out with a dollar for the person that is requesting money are people that don't necessarily look like they have too many dollars to spare, right? Right. I'm very, I'm very struck by the fact that um, when you have been in a place of adversity yourself, you can, from that place, do a tremendous amount of good. Um, so I think that's the challenge to be able to um, to be able to 
figure out healing solutions, to be able to say, oh, that's a terrible thing that happened to me. I'm going to make sure it doesn't happen to someone else. Or I'm going to teach people how to deal with someone that has had my experiences. Um, one of the things we never talk about when we talk about trauma is the impact it has on the family, on, on your spouse or your children or your parents, right? Yeah. Um, and most, most of the time, family members are really at a loss. They don't know what to do or what to say. Some of them feel very manipulated <laughs> by um, some of the PTSD symptoms. They, you know... They, they run out of compassion. Uh, it's very hard. Um, the trauma survivor doesn't always share a lot. Um, by the way, that's usually to protect the listener um, from the traumatic material. Um, and so I think there's a great need to be able to um, talk about traumatic experiences and, and really give people kind of a primer in how you can help someone in your family that has, what, what kind of things are helpful, what kind of interventions are not helpful. Um, mostly in our American society, we decide that it's better not to really ask how someone's doing. Right. <laughs> you know, that right. they've been exposed to something horrible, like, you know, nice day we're having. You know, you don't, you don't really say, how are you, when you think the answer is going to be, I'm really awful, right? It's more that when we say, how are you? We're hoping that the answer is fine. And how are you? Right. 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 Uh, we, kind of, we kind of dread somebody who will say, you know, I'm, I'm actually not doing well because we don't know what to do next. We don't know what the next sentence is. Like we feel, maybe we feel something about that, but we're. Well, what is you know, the next sentence? Well, the next sentence is, do you want to tell me about it? Uh -huh. What can I do? <laughs> can I do something for you? <laughs> do you want to tell me about it up here? I'll listen. Yeah. Can I do something for you? Um, just really basic, you know. Do you want to take a walk and tell me? Yeah. Or something. Yeah. So I think it's just a matter of not running from it because you're so scared you might say the wrong thing that you don't say anything um so it's it's um yeah just i appreciate that so much uh <laughs> it could you know because it can be hard it can be hard to know how to yeah just you know keep, uh, wow that sounds awful yeah is there yeah. something i could do for you yeah uh yeah, that's not so hard <laughs> you know here's here's Here's, I'll just give a reflection to you. One of the things I love about your your work, your voice in this world, your research, uh, is that you're giving us language to understand something that's really difficult to understand, uh, especially if it is intergenerational trauma and we have markers on our DNA and we have a certain stress response as a result that we don't know why we have that stress response. Um, you know, it's really hard to work through something that we can't name. Uh, yeah. and you know, one of the things I so appreciated about what you're, you're a part of in this larger field of understanding trauma is, Hey, we all have it, or most of us have it. Um, 
And a lot of it, we don't know how to deal with it and we don't know how to name it and we don't know how to talk about it. Uh, but if we can start to understand, oh, here's what's happening to me. This is a bit about why I might have this stress response. This is a bit about why I might show up this way. Um, and, and to give us tools to help, as you say, metabolize. That's my favorite word I'm going to bring from this conversation. <laughs> uh, to metabolize, to, 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 to make it not so rigid in how we can relate to it and move ahead. It, I think it's so important. Um, I had another uh, person on the show who has done trauma work in larger communities um, with a Parkland shooting community. Uh, she's worked in Rwanda with genocide survivors. Um, so she goes into a variety of communities that have had a communal traumatic event. Um, and, you know, one of the things she talks about is, hey, we need to equip people with the tools for this and equip them you know, she's like, my big job is to train the community on how to continue to do this work after I leave. Uh, be, and I, I feel like part of what she does is give them language, gives them tools, gives them a way to see it and hold it and talk about it. And I feel like you're doing that in another way. Um, and it seems to me that at a collective level in our society, we're asking for it. I don't mm -hmm. think this work would be coming out in the ways that it is if we weren't asking for it. Um, yeah, yeah I, I appreciate that. Thanks. I, I think um, I think what has really resonated with people is this idea that um, that change can be transformative and enduring. Because until PTSD came along, until epigenetics came along, we really, did, we really didn't have a way to understand that effects of stress can be long-lasting. We had fight or flight. We understood that chronic stress could be bad, right? That, but we didn't understand how an event that was already over and done with um, could continue to linger on. It was a very difficult concept. It was a concept that made, that actually made PTSD hard um, for people to wrap their heads around when it first came out in, in 1980, because our concept of stress is really that if you remove the stressor, um, the acute physiologic responses uh, go back to normal, right? Your heart at some point is not pounding out of your chest anymore. Um, once the threat is over. And we just didn't know how to name a molecule or a, or a, or a, a mechanism that could explain why that's just not true, why there is an imprint. What is that imprint and why is it there? So I think epigenetics gave us a language for it. And even, um, even people that don't understand the specifics of the epigenetic marks and how they come about and how they don't, it gets very technical and very unglamorous. Um, but I think the concept has been very captivating to people because they know that events matter. Mm -hmm. and, and the things that happen to us matter. And the things that happen to our parents matter too. 
and our grandparents. And that is just something that people knew, knew already to be true. And so applying this word to all of that, I think, um, applying, applying this word to that, I think was, um, was, was helpful to people. So, cause, because it validated something that was already inside of them. Absolutely. Well, I think, I think the, um, the concepts we're attracted to the most are the ones that we kind of already know, right? So we just didn't know there was a word for that, and we're delighted that there is. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Uh, Dr. Yehuda, thank you so much. This has been, um, this has been really rich. I appreciate your work, and uh, best, best of luck to you, especially with the new work you're doing around psychedelics and starting to loosen up our ability to be with something. Uh, I'm, I'm yeah. very much looking forward to seeing where that goes. So thank you for Me your too. time. Hey there, thanks so much for listening in. If this conversation was powerful, if it stirred your soul or inspired your journey, then be sure to share it with a friend. Just copy and paste the link wherever you're listening to this podcast and text that link right now to a friend that you think would be inspired by this episode. And if this is your first time here, be sure to click that subscribe button over on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and I'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and review so I can get to know you and your thoughts better. To learn more about the work I do with emerging and established paradigm changers, go to thecourageousmessenger.com. That's all for today. Thanks so much for being here, and I hope to see you in the next episode.